Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that your mercies are new. Lord, we acknowledge you as creator and sustainer of everything. You're holy, you're righteous, you're good, you're just, sovereign. Lord, and... um, There was a time when we rebelled against you and hated you and ran from you, Lord, and in your kindness and your mercy, you um, drew us to yourself and brought us to repentance. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to pay the penalty, take on your righteous wrath that we deserve. You placed on him. And because of that, we have forgiveness of sin. We are forgiven. We're forgiven of past sins, present sins, future sins. We're no longer a slave to them because of your death and burial and resurrection. Father, and your grace enables us now to walk in a manner worthy of your calling until the day you return or we're with you. God, I thank you that we can know these truths, that we have your word and your great promises in the gospel to us, and that we have one another to encourage one another with these truths. And we have this morning, um, Lord, by your grace to look at your word and learn from you in your word. And God, I pray for help. I pray for your spirit's help in speaking this morning. Um, Lord, we are weak. I feel so weak. And yet, Lord, I know that you will give me the grace. You will give us the grace to do what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray for each and every one of these women that are sitting here, Lord, that you would help them not be distracted with um, the cares of the morning, with what's going on in their lives, and they would be um, attentive to you. And Lord, I pray that we would um, grow and love you more through um, being together, through hearing your word that we would leave here this morning just so amazed at what you've done in us and um, what you've called us to, and we'll be encouraged and we'll be spurred on and motivated. And Lord, I um, pray for the kids and the faithful servants and Wellspring kids that you would that you would work mightily there, that you would be glorified there, that you would be glorified in and through all of us this morning. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, oh, I was going to tell you guys this. All right. Do you know we are on lesson 21? Isn't that crazy? 21 lessons we have had here in Wellspring. So we're, we're almost to wrap it up. And thank you for just being faithful. And... Um, It's just evidence of God's grace that we're all here and continuing to participate. Um, And I wanted to, as as we talk about the schedule, actually, I wanted to remind you that we do not meet next week. It's spring break. It's 
it's hard to kind of have spring break for everyone or accommodate everyone's spring break. But next week we will not be meeting, and then we'll then we'll meet again on the 21st. And then after that, just if you want to look at your schedule, then we then Tom Engstead's going to be with us teaching us, and then um, we'll have two weeks then after that. So we're wrapping it up quickly. We're done. Yeah, our last time together will be April 11th. Yeah, so crazy. Um, okay, so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our um, third discipline ministry, and we'll be in First Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, last week we were, or for the last two weeks we were in First Thessalonians chapter 1 with Chris, and um, those were very impactful messages for me. I don't know about you. But she shared with us that uh, living a life of ministry means that the gospel is our message. The gospel is our message. It's so much a part of who we are that we're always looking to share it with others, um, to those who are saved and those who do not know the Lord, who are not saved. Um, but equal to that, it means that being an un- um, that it means being an uncommon messenger of or with that gospel, displaying God's power and spirit with full conviction through gentleness, never distracting from the message, but accentuating the message by the manner in which we live. And it means being an example to others, living lives of repentance, having joy, in the midst of circumstances. We want that to be so effective that ministry is multiplied. Ministry continues on through others. And we were encouraged to pray that God would raise up others who will speak and live that out more deeply and more broadly than we do. This is what the gospel has the power to do. So let's pray for God to use us in this way that the complete gospel would be proclaimed and lived out as we live an imitatable life so that others would become imitators of us as we imitate Christ. And then pray that they would become an example to others. That's that chain reaction. And this is the kind of ministry we aim for, just as Paul did. With the goal of repentance, ministry labors for nothing Less than that. Nothing less than the repentance. It means we labor for transformation of life. Our life and others' lives. We labor to see people become servants of the Lord. And that, we long for, that would long for Jesus to come. And if we're going to be that kind of women, we must be purposeful. We must be purposeful. First, with our own hearts. Right? That's why we continue to go back to discipline one again and again. So with that, let's turn our notebooks over and let's review the disciplines. We must prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. In particular the gospel. The gospel. The good news. What Jesus has done for us. His free gift to us of salvation. And with all of the implications and all of the realities and all the benefits of the gospel. Do we know? Do we know? 
Or do we forget the power of the gospel's implications and impact on our lives for today? For today. It's easy to embrace and love the gospel for salvation, for sure. He saved me, and someday I'll be in heaven. And I get that, kind of, you know, as best as I can, growing in it. But how do these realities impact my life today? Now what? How do we live? How do we apply and trust these realities right now? And it's so amazing. He is so amazing. He offers his grace to us every day. Every day. His, his gift keeps on giving. He says in Second Peter 1 that he gives us everything we need for life and godliness according to all of his great and precious promises that he gives us in the gospel. I think I've recommended this before, but if you need help understanding that, and I need help understanding that continually, we should never be content where we are with our understanding of what Christ has done for us. This is an awesome book to just kind of shepherd your heart with those realities, not in place of your time with him, but to supplement or add. It is great in helping you understand the gospel implications in your life. Do you all have it? Does anyone not have it? Because if you don't... Really? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm surprised. All right. Next week, you get one. <laughs> so, must have it. Do you have it? You don't. Okay, that's two. We've got to get these in your hands. So, okay. Um, so, we shepherd our hearts with his word. And in particular, the gospel. To be with our Savior, the giver of the gift. We draw near to him and grow in his grace to know his gospel work in our lives and, and the power to impact our hearts right now. And as you bring your heart before the word of God and renew your mind with his very great and precious truths to us in the gospel, when we shepherd our hearts and when we counsel our hearts, when we lead our hearts, when we position, when we position our hearts to the word of God, so we can meet with him. So that we can grow in our love and affection for Jesus, our Savior. So we can know him and, and, and obey him and serve him. So that we can enjoy and delight in him more and more. And if you feel weak in this, please be encouraged. And remember, this is an ongoing process. And remember that his love for us for his children is not because we're worthy of it or that we could ever earn it. It's not based on our performance and what we do. It's based on the performance of his son. And when we shepherd our hearts with the truths of the gospel, he will strengthen us. He's our help to tear down our doubt. And, and any confidence that we have in ourselves. And he'll empower us to delight in him and to display him so that he builds up his body through us. We participate. And discipline, too, is about ministering to those in our household with our hearts for God and the gospel. See, when we're positioning our hearts and refusing to be moved from there, from being established and steadfast in the gospel, 
we can't help but love and serve and see the impact of God's grace in our hearts because we'll be so much more impacted by and absorbed in him because we've been with him that our homes become a place where the gospel is what shapes our care and our input into others' lives. We'll be concerned to step, step into the lives of our families and our roommates, anyone that comes into our homes with the love of Christ, displaying his transforming work in our lives, having that aroma of Christ to make an impact there. And you know, we always just have to give this warning. We must be watchful and careful not to leapfrog over our own hearts. And we, and we need to be careful not to leapfrog over our household relationships ever. And then, and then we step into people's lives in ministry, discipline three. <clears throat> As we've seen from 1 Thessalonians 1, we want to be confident and we want to be bold with the right message and concerned to be the kind of women by his grace as he does his powerful work in us. That's discipline three, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household. She steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Are you beginning to see that ministry is all of life? All of life. It's, it's intentional living. It's about living out the gospel in all areas of our lives. This is what we are aiming for as we gather for Wellspring each week. Our purpose. To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church and its gospel purpose. So this morning, we're going to see two of six gospel center truths for ministry from 1 Thessalonians 2. We're, we're on week one, so you can um, take out your outline, and you'll see it says um, uh, week one, and, I'll, and we'll give you the outline when we're together in two weeks to, to finish it. Um, oops, I was showing you the homework. It says part two because we're in chapter two, like last two weeks was part one, and now we're in part two, but we're in week one, if that's confusing. I kind of wanted to explain that. So we're going to cover Roman numeral number one and number two of the six um, gospel center truths for ministry. Um, but first, let's read First Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through twelve. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives 
because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, on your outline, the first gospel-centered truth for ministry is this, Roman numeral number one. Ministry must be concerned first and most in engaging people with the gospel. We want to engage people with the gospel. That's what our ministry must first and most be concerned with. So we must always be growing in our knowledge, right, of our Lord and Savior. There's nothing else to put first and most before others. And as we engage people with the gospel, gospel ministry is never hollow or found wanting. That's point number one under Roman numeral number one. Gospel ministry, it's never hollow or found wanting. When we're bringing the gospel first and foremost to people, it's never hollow, it's never found wanting. That is what Paul said in verse one. He says, brethren, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. And vain means hollow. It means empty. It means without purpose, wanting and purpose. Vain is found wanting in, in earnestness. And Paul's saying, our time with you, it was not marked by emptiness. It was marked by fullness. His ministry had a powerful impact. Why? Because we spoke the gospel to you. See, because Paul was gospel-centered, he had a gospel-engaging ministry. So true gospel ministry is never hollow. Are wanting. Okay, so now, throughout our outline, you're going to see some questions. Very challenging questions. Convicting questions. But they're for our benefit. To help us grow. To be more gospel engaging. And these questions are going to be your homework questions for the week. But it might be helpful to just give them some thought as we go along. Okay, so the first question is this. What will happen to your ministry if, if the gospel is not central in your relationships. Paul says that when we came to you, it wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty. It's because it was gospel-centered. So what's going to happen if the gospel is not central? What would our relationships be? They'd be empty. They'd be hollow. Can you think of a relationships in your life that are like that? I know I certainly can. Just kind of surfacy. So I want to grow. I want to grow in that. All right. Number two, gospel engaging ministry requires boldness. It requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. Okay. This takes us to our first of a couple of sandwiches this morning or kind of like bookends. Um, it's really kind of neat how Paul does this. But by sandwich, I mean, you'll see in the verse, there's a top piece of bread and there's a bottom piece of bread. And these two um, say almost the same thing. And then in the middle is where you'll see the meat, the nugget of truth we want to watch for. So watch in verse 2 how we see that in our top piece and our bottom piece. Verse 2, it says, We had already suffered and been mistreated. And then how does that verse end? Much opposition. Suffered and mistreated, a lot of opposition. 
Then look what it says in the middle because that's what we want to see now. It says, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. Gospel ministry requires boldness to speak, even though opposition might surround us, right? Remember, we, we, we taught on this earlier, um, back in Acts 16 and 17, when Paul was first, he was in Philippi. And a girl was bringing her slave owner a lot of business because she was demon-possessed, um, and she was telling fortunes, so uh, she was making him money. And Paul puts a stop to the business by driving out the demon, and they uh, started beating him. And then they threw him in jail, and then, and then remember there was the earthquake? And the soldier guarding him, he's about to kill himself because he knows that he's going to get killed anyway. And, and he ends up getting saved, him and his whole household. Remember that? Paul was beaten with, with rods without any formal hearing as a Roman citizen, which was against Roman law. And the Philippians then, they, they just they realized that and they wanted him to just, just leave town, just get out. So he left Philippi. But he suffered, and he was mistreated. And even with this kind of mistreatment in Philippi, and then on into uh, Thessalonica, much opposition, he still spoke boldly the gospel. Can you imagine that? Just think about that. Next question. How much trouble exists in our relationships because of the gospel? Or what might some trouble or that what might be some reasons for the absence of trouble this this question is very convicting for me because when I think about my relationships and I think about trouble um, it's usually not because of the gospel it's usually because of me it's usually because of sin in fact if we're having trouble in in relationships with other believers other family members or other Roommates, it's probably because the gospel is not central. But do you see where there is conflict, there's tension because of the gospel in relationships? There probably should be some, right? I mean, we certainly don't go looking, you know, for it to stir up conflict. That's not our goal at all. But if we're living out the gospel and we're proclaiming the gospel, we're probably going to have some opposition, don't you think? We live in a dark world that calls the gospel foolishness. So it would be good to give some thought to that. Another question to give some thought to. What happens when opposition comes in your gospel ministry or because of the gospel? What happens? What, what should we do when opposition comes? Are we handling it in a Christ-like way, in a way that's gospel-centered? Do, do we know how to handle it? Do we know how to handle opposition? how to deal with it. It can be so difficult. It really can. I think we've probably all experienced it in some way or another. But where might we start? You know, are we are we bowing to his gospel purposes in that? Allowing them to do God's work in me through opposition and then trusting him for the outcome. Are we viewing opposition in light of who we are in Christ? Again, just some things to think about, to evaluate. So when we're concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel, gospel ministry is never hollow. It's not in vain. It's not found wanting. And gospel engaging ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. And number three, 
Gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. In God alone. Paul said in verse 2, we have boldness in our God. And that word boldness, literally, literally it just means we had um, all speech. And this, would, this word boldness is only used in um, the New Testament in a gospel proclamation kind of setting. Paul was in a state of mind where his words, they just flowed freely. He could just freely speak the gospel with confidence regardless of the situation, regardless of opposition or suffering or mistreatment. So despite trouble, Paul's attitude was that he could confidently and boldly let the gospel message just, it just flow. I so want to be more like that. I'm so tempted at times to just shrink back. You know, I don't want to cause that conflict. I just want to be liked. Anybody, can anyone relate to that? <laughs> Please. But am I doing that at the expense of my call to boldly proclaim with confidence the gospel in his power by his grace? The boldness, it's in what? In our God. It's not in ourselves. It's not in ourselves. That's what he says in verse 2. Do you see that? Verse 2, we had, we have boldness and it's in our God. That was not a natural ability to be bold. It's not because he had a bold personality. This freeness of speech, it was in our God. There was such a union between Paul and his God, our God. He was confident in his union with Christ, that he was just ready to speak it, and so he did. But wait, think about this. What was he surrounded by? He was surrounded by opposition. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I would have been so fearful to speak. I may have at least been tempted to try to be politically correct or relevant. Right, We see that going on in our culture today. But not Paul. And you know why? Because conflict or comfort, his circumstances, they are not impacting his speech. What impacts his speech? Go ahead. God. Yeah, God is impacting his speech. He had boldness, and it's, and it's not in his comfortable situation. It's not in the lack of, lack of conflict or presence of conflict. It's always, always in his God. There was no opposition or circumstance that would take away his confidence because it wasn't in himself, it wasn't in his situation, it was in his God. What a great reminder for us. I have to believe in that situation. It would be by his grace that would um, give him that boldness to speak. I think we can be confident in that as well. I know we can. So I have another question for you. What needs to happen daily to increase your God-given boldness to speak the gospel? Anything come to mind? (laughs) Anything? Please say it. That's right. Yeah, discipline one. Shepherding our hearts to be near our God. To walk in nearness to him. Positioning our hearts before his word. Living out his presence in our lives. See, because... The more we are aware of him, the more the gospel will flow. And the less concerned we'll be about any opposition. Takes ongoing heart shepherding. 
And that's why we can't become passive in our time with the Lord, in his word. Discipline 1 says, She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. We just have to continually remind remind ourselves that when we're in the Word, that we're there to meet with God and to behold the gospel, who God is, to see our sin, to be there, to see our sin, to confess our sin, and to turn, to repent, and to see the sweetness and completeness of what Christ has done on the cross for it. Remembering God's wrath was satisfied. The cup is empty. I'm no longer a slave to it. I can get lazy. I can. I can get lazy and read and be content with that. Just, okay, I read my Bible and I did my reading plan and check, but haven't really been purposeful in meeting with my Savior. But if my God-given boldness to speak the gospel is going to increase, I must actively shepherd my heart with the gospel truth when I read his word. I must. To grow in my knowledge and awareness of him and who he is and what he's done and is doing, so I'm ready. Okay, second gospel-centered truth for ministry, number two. Roman numeral number two. Oh, on the back. In gospel-centered ministry, God himself is central. Okay, there are at least seven ways we see that, just in verses uh, 2 through 6. And the first way we see that God is central, number one, is God is the origin of our message and mission. He's the origin of our message and mission. We saw the start of it in verse 2. We have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Our boldness comes from God and our message comes from God. Paul says he spoke the gospel of God. Verse 3 states it negatively. Paul says, here's where our exhortation does not originate from. Do you see that in verse 3? For our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. In verse 6, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ. So his mission, his ministry as an apostle doesn't come from himself. He's not a he's not an apostle of his own ideas, his own philosophies. He's an apostle of Christ. And because God is central in gospel-centered ministry, our message originates only from him and our mission originates only from him, just like it did for Paul. He was an apostle of Christ, an apostle means a sent one. And we're all sent ones as well. We're not, we're not apostles, but we're sent ones. An apostle is one who was called by Jesus to that particular office, but we certainly are sent ones. We are sent ones um, to be witnesses of the gospel wherever God places us. And remember, that doesn't just mean sent out there somewhere. It doesn't mean Spain and Italy, right? We are sent ones. We are witnesses wherever God places us, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools. School, wherever he has us, that's ministry. Now, the second way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry, number two, is God purifies our exhortations. He purifies our exhortations. Verse three, he says, For our exhortation, whether Paul needed to encourage or admonish, it does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. 
So his message was the truth. His life, Paul's life was pure. And his ministry was honest. It wasn't deceitful. He was without hypocrisy, without deception. He wasn't motivated by anything other than the gospel. And if our lives are going to be gospel-centered, then we, uh, this must be true of us too. True words, pure lives, honest motives, gospel-centered motives. The third way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry, number three, God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. That's verse four. Doesn't that sound a little scary? Let's take a look and see what it means, though. Verse four. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Now, at the beginning of the verse is the phrase, have been approved. And then and at the end of the verse is another word, examine, and, and they're actually the same Greek word. And this brings us to our second sandwich. So first of all, the bread. How does the verse start and how does it end? We're going to see this, a similar idea there. And then we're going to see something in the middle to meet that nugget of truth. Verse 4 begins, we have been approved by God. We've been examined by God. We've been tested by God. It's the verb, dakamadzo, and it means tested for the purpose of refining. It was the same word used for purifying metal, to purify for the purpose of refining. See, they would, they would take a piece of metal and they would put it to the fire. And um, as it heated up, all the dross and the worthless scum, the impurities, would rise up to the surface. And then and they, they would skim it all off as it would come up. And they would continue to heat the metal and they would continue to take off all of those impurities until the one refining it could look, into, look at the metal and see his own reflection. And that would mean that the impurities were out of it. At that point, it was pure. Now, the metal wasn't put to the fire because it was bad metal and they wanted to destroy it. No, they put it to the fire because they wanted to purify it. The idea with this word to approve or to examine is not the idea to test us, to show us or just to show us our failures. It's for the purpose of getting rid of the impurities to purify us so that his reflection can be seen in us. And this is an ongoing process. It's a gracious thing that God does. It's a good testing, a positive testing. But is it pleasant? No, no, it usually isn't. It can really be hard, and it can be painful, but it's not for the purpose of destroying us. It's for the purpose of purifying us so that we can be more like Christ. It's a very loving thing that God does. It's his grace, even though it may not feel like it at the time. But remember, our feelings, they just can't be trusted, right? Paul is saying, I'm a man whom God has examined, who continues to be purified by God. He lives as a man who knows that God examines his heart. So that's the bread. Verse 4, starting and ending with the idea of being examined by God. 
Now, what goes on in between that examination? Look at in the middle of verse 4 there. To be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. As believers, we've been entrusted with the gospel. So we too must live as women who know that God examines our hearts. And how do we live that way? Again, it's discipline one. Uh, what else is there? We've been entrusted with the gospel. It's why we preach it first and most to our own hearts. The gospel is what prepares us to endure God's refining and benefit from God's refining so that we are more effective, more fruitful as ministers of the gospel at home, work, school, small group, everywhere. All right, the fourth way that God is central in gospel ministry, number four, God opens my mouth. God opens my mouth. In verse four, Paul says, as we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. If God's influencing us, we can't be silent. We won't, actually. We won't be silent. We will open our mouths and we'll speak. The gospel will flow. The next way we see that God is central and gospel-centered ministry, number five, is that God is the primary audience. God's the primary audience. We saw it already in verse four when Paul said, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And then again in verse five, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And then he says that again down in verse 10. You are witnesses and so is God. Paul had this awareness that God was present, just as much as um, he was aware of the fact that, that um, men were watching. God is the primary audience in Paul's ministry. God's a primary audience in any gospel-centered ministry. He's the only audience that matters. So we just don't want to lose sight of that. What's the next way we see that God is central in gospel ministry? Number six, God drops my mask in ministry. God drops my mask in ministry. Verse five, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Paul was sincere. He didn't flatter. He wasn't manipulative. He wasn't trying to get something, and he wasn't trying to hide anything. He didn't come with a pretext for greed. Pretext is the idea of hiding true motives to put on a mask, to cover something up in order to satisfy my greed. And Paul didn't do that. He didn't flatter them with the real intent of getting their money, though I think he was accused of that. But that's not what he was doing. So if God is central, we don't use flattery or put on a mask or cover things up in order to satisfy greed. Now, Maybe our greed isn't necessarily money, but could be a greed for approval or acceptance, compliments, praise, recognition, control. But the gospel calls us and he enables us to drop those masks, to drop the self-serving, self-grasping masks and just seek to please the Lord, to have a genuine concern for others instead of ourselves. Again, this is about um, motives. It's about our heart motives. The seventh way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry is that God humbles 
my use of authority. He humbles my use of authority. Now remember, we already saw that God's the primary audience in gospel ministry. Paul said that God is my witness, my audience, and the only audience that matters. And because of that, if I have any authority as a messenger giving the message of the gospel, it's not because and it's not about me. God's the primary audience. Paul says in verse 6, Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. They, they had an authority being apostles of Christ. Here's Paul. I mean, he's seen the risen Lord, and he knew it wasn't about him at all. It wasn't about his authority because God was central in Paul's ministry. He didn't use his authority in a way that would have lorded it over them. Here's a statement. And I think it's, it's, it's on your notes, and I think it's from Scott. I forgot to um, double-check that. But any authority I might possess in ministry or anywhere, it's not about me. Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval, pleasure, and witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of our authority for authority's sake. Once again, this is about our hearts, humility of hearts. Understanding who I am in Christ. Now, authority is, is can be it's good. It's God given, and when we're in a role of authority, we certainly need to exercise that authority. But we must do it with humility and gentleness for the benefit of others, not ourselves. That's gospel-centered ministry. If you're a mom, that's going to apply to your parenting, right? In fact, if you have any role of authority, there's a phrase that Paul uses to describe his authority in 2 Corinthians 13.10. You can just write that down. 2 Corinthians 13.10, he says that the Lord gave him authority for building up and not tearing down. For building up, not tearing down. Think about where we might be building up. Where might we be tearing down? The gospel compels us. Its power in us leads us to use authority the way Jesus did. He's our greatest example. Remember, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Let's turn to Philippians 2. I just want to read this to be reminded of our Savior and what he's done. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the one with all authority and he's the one who took on the form of a bondservant, a slave. He was in the form of God and he took on the form of a slave. That's what authority is supposed to do. That's what God does. That's who, that's who he is. He's a humble God in Jesus Christ. And when he saves sinners and draws us to himself and sends us out in his name, we're to be humble as well. In conclusion, gospel-centered ministry engages people with the gospel. It's not hollow. It requires boldness, even if there's opposition. Gospel-centered ministry finds its boldness in God alone. He's central as the origin of our message and our mission. Gospel-centered ministry has pure motives. And as he tests us to entrust us with the gospel, we can be confident it's for the purpose of purifying us out of his love for us to be conformed to the image of his son. By his grace, he opens our mouth. He's our primary audience and calls us and enables us to to drop our masks. The gospel compels us. It's the power in us that leads us to use authority the way Jesus did as a humble servant. A gospel-centered, engaging ministry keeps these points, keeps Jesus in our ministry, central in our ministry, which is all of life. And as Scott reminded us a few weeks ago, the more we nurture and feed our hearts with the gospel, the more we will become what we already are, witnesses. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would become more like you, that that we would be humble servants for your glory, that we would be bold and confident in the gospel, that we bring our hearts and remind our hearts daily of what you've done for us and what you are doing in and through us. God, I pray that we would have um, just a sweet time in our, in our discussion groups now and encourage one another with the hope that we have in you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And I pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.